0: Okay, so I'm going to talk about free-to-play games today. Um, I'm really curious, who here hasn't played a free-to-play game? I know there's... Okay, well, we knew Brad already. Okay, so the rest of you aren't willing to admit where you're actually telling the truth. Um, Okay, that's pretty good. Okay, so this is, normally when I give talks, I really like to engage with whoever whoever I'm delivering to, and I really like to talk back and forth and stuff, but there's a lot of content here. Last time I practiced this, it was like an hour and a half. So while I encourage you to engage with me as much as possible, also use your own judgment knowing that there's a ton of stuff. Deal? Okay, cool. All right, so I'm going to start this off by talking about a game called Jetpack Joyride. Um... Who hasn't played Jetpack Joyride? Wow, okay, interesting. Okay, cool. Well, we'll talk about that right away. First, we're going to talk about learning curves. So, can somebody give me a definition for what a learning curve is? Anyone want to take a stab? You're half-heartedly raising your hand. How quickly
1: someone picks up your game and understands it.
0: Okay, that's pretty good. I heard someone else over here. How uh,
1: quickly it
2: takes to get proficient at
0: a... Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah.
2: I was just going to say Eve Online. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: really right. Okay, I've heard about this. Because <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. that's, like, like supposed to, supposedly, like, one of the deepest and hardest, like, systems in games ever, right? Yeah. yeah. Most, Most games
3: are, like, play. a straight yeah. line. It's a point. Point. Yeah, it's just a straight
0: line. Okay
3: graphing of skill level
0: over time? Yeah, so that's basically what it is. Um, So the definition I like to use, which is pretty much as good as all of those, is that it's basically representation of the rate at which your ability to perform the game improves improves over the time that you've spent practicing it. Right. So here's a couple of graphs of of difficulty curves. So the activity on the left is uh, leaf blowing. So the shape of this difficulty curve is basically a function of basically how much time it takes you to learn and or master a new thing as you practice it. And so you plot pretty much your knowledge on the X... No, that's the Y-axis. You plot your the knowledge of things you can learn at this activity on the Y-axis, and on the X-axis is the time that you've spent practicing the activity. And so the shape comes about because of how long it takes to master a thing. And each thing on this X-axis, Y-axis... I must have been doing math or something the other day. Um, Each one of these things, right, is cumulative so that in order to do, for example, whatever flushing corners means, uh, you have to first master pointing at leaves. And before you can, well, at least effectively point at leaves, you have to figure out how to start the motor, right? Uh, And then, of course, on the left there is an activity that's uh, very different, like World of Warcraft, right, much deeper activity, uh, a lot more things to learn. Okay, so we have some understanding of what a learning curve is. So, let's um, let's talk about a game called Battletoads. Who who's played Battletoads? Okay, cool. I was I expect, okay, who got past level 3? <laughs>
4: <I had> <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, without using any cheating. <laughs> Okay, so much fewer. So that was like, um, so pretty much everyone raised their hand to play Battletoads. I would say 90%, and maybe like a small fraction of that passed it. Okay, so for those of you who have, well, all of you have, but let me just humor me for a second, okay? So I chose this as an example to illustrate for you guys because um, what you do in the Turbo Tunnel, in this level particularly, as compared to other levels, okay, I just started and my mouth is going dry already. is that the screen is forcibly moving forward, right? Like this, one one-third of this is one screen. And basically, all you're doing is you're just modulating your position in order to avoid obstacles. So this is like a partial map of the level, and there's some screenshots. So basically, you know, you want to either be in the upper position or the lower position, or you want to jump sometimes according to what obstacle is coming at you. So Battletoads is known for being brutally challenging, Right? that's its reputation, but it's, it's very, very learnable. And in fact, this, this level itself, even though it's um, pretty cutthroat, uh, you can learn it. You can practice playing it. And the more you practice it, the better you get at it and the farther you can get uh, in that level. And as you learn, um, you utilize a bunch of different uh, techniques at the same time to basically learn the process of playing the level better, right? You rely on your reaction time. You have to do trial and error because some, of the, some parts of the sequence are so fast, you can't just react to it. Uh, you also have to memorize parts of the sequence. For, in other words, like, okay, there's three of these left, right, left, and then there's a jump, and then there's three more. But then you also have to rely on your muscle memory at the same time, which is kind of the same, but not really the same. It's another dimension of learning. And the interesting thing is that um, when you're doing a performance in a linear fashion like this, um, that has a certain particular learning curve shape to it. And it's not really distinct to Battletoads. It's really any kind of a performance that you do that has a linear structure where you're performing a, a bunch of things in sequence and you have to basically master the ones in the beginning before you're able to even access the ones at the end, right? So I call this a, basically a generic action game learning curve. And what you're doing is it's a, it's a linear performance. So it kind of looks like this. So on y-axis here is how much of the level you're able to complete. And on the x-axis there is how much time you've spent practicing. And so this is a theoretical curve. This isn't actual data. But this represents the kind of structure that you'll experience. And that is specifically that, for example, your 10th hour of practice is going to net you a smaller result in improvement than your first hour... And that's because of just the very nature of the linear performance, right? Because in order to, for example, perform the last 10% of that level, well, you had to get through the first 90. And so what's actually happening as you're learning this is um, you're actually gaining new knowledge about the level even before you've had a chance to fully integrate and fully master uh, the knowledge to get you in the beginning part of it. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's compare this to what you would find in a analogous situation in a typical free-to-play action game, but more specifically, Jetpack Joyride. So I chose Jetpack Joyride in comparison because it actually maps very closely to what you're doing in Battletoads. Uh, even though the control scheme is different, right? It's like a one-button game, so you hold down the button and your character moves up on the screen, and you let go, and he moves down. But you're still modulating your position on the screen, and there's obstacles coming at you forcibly. And so it's, uh, it, it maps very well to the same type of activity you did to play Battletoads. So Jetpack Joyride just happens to be an infinite-runner style of game. And, um, but mechanically, and as far as uh, traversal goes, it's similar. And so at face value, right? Like this seems like it's the same kind of thing in terms of learning that we find, uh, even in something as extreme as Battletoads. Especially in the short term, right? I mean, in the beginning you suck at it, you learn a few things about what the symbols mean, what the different rules of the game mean, and so on, and you get better at it, and then you can progress farther. So does the learning curve, is it the same thing? Well, it looks about the same thing, but something really funny happens. And this I actually plotted with my own experience playing um, the game with my own data. And what we have here, because it's an infinite runner game, right, there is actually an infinite ceiling for how high you can progress. But what happens is if you play the game and if you decide uh, not to support your play by buying buying power-ups, right, in other words, you just play the free mode of it and you keep playing, you'll find that you'll get better and better over time, but then after you reach a certain point you don't really continue to do better anymore. And I found that this stopped for me around at around 4,500 meters. That was the amount of progress I could make. That was the most amount of progress I could make before uh, losing. And here's the interesting thing. If you compare it to battlefields, here's, here's the funny part. If for somebody of uh, sufficiently low skill... Let's say uh, they're not so good at games, so maybe they can't even complete level three in Battletoads. Uh, For someone of sufficiently low skill, you could actually take their their learning curve would actually look just like this over here, scaled down an arbitrary amount according to however their limit of ability is. So, in other words, these two are almost indistinguishable. And what you think is happening here is that oh well, I just I'm not good enough. If I'm not good enough and I can't figure out how to get past, uh, or if I can't figure out the game enough, then there's certainly a point at which I can't progress. But there's something more happening here. Uh, It's not just that I wasn't good enough to get past a certain point in Jetpack Joyride when uh, it just, you know, after a certain distance it just gets too hard. The game was actually specifically designed to make effective progress impossible simply by ability at some point. In other words, there there exists the limit of learning. LOL. So, uh, how do they do this, and why do they do this? (laughs) We'll get to that. (laughs) So... Before we say what ask why, uh let's talk about how they actually achieve this. Uh the mechanism in which they do this is multifaceted and here's some of the ways that they do it. So one of them is that they have procedurally generated randomized sectors in the game. So it's an infinite runner, right? So screens are coming past you forcibly and it just never ends until you die. And each uh, section of screens, uh those are authored, right? Let's say a stretch of like I don't know maybe 10 screens, right? Um those are authored specifically, but the order at which you encounter them, uh, those are randomized. And certainly, uh, the certain, um, I shouldn't say that they're authored. They're probably uh, procedural according to some algorithm. But anyway, the effect is that basically what this allows, and it might not make sense right now, but it will in a little bit, what this allows them to do is actually to create totally random difficulty from one moment to another. Now, on the face of it, this sounds silly. As a designer, you're like, well, why would you really want that other than, oh, it's exciting because it's so random. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute. The other thing they do, which is totally fascinating, is that they'll get you into physically unsolvable situations. And by that, I mean that there'll be an obstacle that is coming at you fast enough, and it's wide enough on the screen that if you are at a certain position on that screen that you can't predict beforehand because you haven't seen the obstacle yet, you'll actually have no chance to dodge it. It's completely random. So it's basically like at a random time, a random event will will occur that will gate you. Well, you will go past it if you you have a chance to pass it if you're on the correct part of the screen. And if you're not on the correct part of the screen, well, then forget it. You've lost already. So luck, not skill, exactly. And this is randomly dispensed, of course, thanks to this. And the really interesting thing is that, for the most part, the average person can't distinguish that this is happening. They just think that they don't, they're not skilled enough. Uh, going back to those past couple learning curves, right? You just think you're at the point of the learning curve that's at the limit of your skill. You can't differentiate, you can't tell that it's actually because it's random. And so what these devices are doing in concert is they're actually scrambling the output of your player effort for any given uh, skill level that you can exhibit. And in fact, what happens over time is that the effect of the random events gradually overpower and they just completely subsume any effect that skill can have on the outcomes of things. So initially this is really exciting, right, because this... No matter how good or bad you are, this ensures that you're going to get these really dramatic successes and failures. They're always going to be unexpected. And the key thing is that you know in the early game, when you first start playing, you have no sense of this uh, because the rate at which you're learning and the rate at which uh, you can figure out how to do better at the game, that overpowers any random effects. You progress despite the fact that there are some random events. But the more you play the game, over a period of time, random starts to gradually overcome anything that you can affect by your skill alone. And so, what the game does initially is it trains you, just like any other game does, by saying, like, yes, you know, you can learn your way out of these problems. Here's some problems, and you can figure it out. You can learn the dynamics, and you can solve them, and you can get better, and you can get farther in the game. Whoa. Okay. Okay. So, the interesting thing is that gradually, if you play the game over time, right, it becomes actually increasingly rigged, and just the very inherent nature of the fact that it's gradual obfuscates that reality. And in fact, the transition between when the game starts as a skill game and becomes a luck game, that is in fact the limit of learning. That's the transition point there. And it's impossible to know that it even exists in the first place until you've surpassed it. And the reality of it is that if you've surpassed that point, you've necessarily invested significant time and significant learning into this game. Okay, so why did they do this? Uh, Why did they design a limitation of learning uh, inherently into the construction of the design of the game? Well... It wasn't like they sat around in a room, they're like, oh, we're going to make a game and it's going to limit people's ability to learn and that'll make us lots of money. Uh, they didn't do that on purpose. It's kind of like a side effect um, because the intent, well, we'll see what the intent is uh, real soon, um, but what's happening actually, what they want to do is they want to predictably basically control players' progress and so they can um, basically offer you a, a sales proposition. And... Of course, what happens is that you know when you get to the limit of learning and you notice that the game, uh, you're not allowed to progress as much as you, were, you used to before, and you can't overcome that with learning, well, this puts you into a spot as a player where um, the developer now knows if you're in that spot that, you know what, that was supposed to be for another slide, never mind. Okay, let's just move on. <laughs> okay, this is what I wanted to say, right? So, when you, once you've surpassed the limit of learning, you're necessarily in a frustrated state because you don't know why your rate of, approaching, rate of progress is approaching zero. And it's not doing so because you're not good enough, even though you think it is. Uh, it's doing so because statistically, that's just the way the mechanics are working out. So here, as a player, you're in an ideal emotional frame of mind to accept the sales pitch, uh, and this is often when they offer you a sales pitch to resume what was once a satisfying rate of progress. And so this transition point is also what people call a paywall. You guys have heard of that term, right? Okay, so let's talk about this dynamic for a little bit. So what are the ways in which Jetpack Joyride tells you? They do a whole bunch of different things. So, first of all, they have like this gigantic selection. This is, uh, one of, this is like the head menu of their, uh, store. And they have like a whole bunch of different categories, and not all of those are actually sales categories, but, um, there's like 77 items right from the start that you can buy. They're all in different categories. Some of them are, are what's called, uh, or sometimes referred to as pay to win, which means it just confers a strict advantage to you just by buying it, right? Like, um, Start like you know, one of them is like you can start 750 meters ahead, uh, that you normally do, and uh, some of them aren't. Some of them actually require you to utilize like some skill in the actual like usage of the item, and uh, some of them are just completely useless, they're like vanity, they have no uh functional purpose. So, this is interesting because uh, one 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 reason I think that they are uh, having a huge variety of items in this whole like morass of a confused presentation here is, uh, first of all, it well, their ceiling is high, right, in terms of, like, what they can sell. Because, it's like, if they sell a million things, well, then there's more chances for somebody to say, okay, well, maybe that's something I want. Another thing that happens is that this actually has an obfuscatory effect on being able to uh, comparison shop. And this actually happens in real life. Mattress manufacturers do this. They will make the same mattress and call it a bunch of different brands, And so, basically, their product line is actually multiplied tremendously, and they do it on purpose to make it more difficult for you as a consumer to price shop. And I kind of get the feeling like they do that for TVs, too, but I don't know that for a fact, because there's, yeah, because there's like 20,000 models that all are the same. Um, And so, the way that you buy all these things is with a premium currency called coins, and Premium currency is a free-to-play term. The reason why it's called premium is that this is a currency that you can actually purchase more quantity of when uh, with money, with real money, right? But you can also collect it in the game. There's uh, there's no coins on that screen. But they're usually lying around on the screen, uh, just littered or bowed in levels, and you collect them, right? And so on the face of it, it seems fair because you don't have to buy coins, right? I mean, you can. They sell you coins. You can get 20 thousand coins for two dollars uh, or if you want to buy in bulk and save and save uh, you can get for thirty dollars you can get a million but what they don't tell you is that well if you decide to be a non-payer and you don't pay money to play the game the best that you could hope for is to collect about fifteen hundred coins per run a run takes maybe a few minutes maybe less than five minutes uh, but that's thirteen times less than what you can get for two dollars So, now who would like to buy a whole bunch of coins for just a dollar or two? And what happens is is that, um, oh, here's another interesting one, right? So, there's this thing called a counterfeit machine in this game. And it's on sale for $5. And what it does is it doubles all your coins that you're collecting in the game. So, this is really interesting because the value of this actually decreases over time because it's it's most valuable when you first buy the game and you haven't collected any coins. The more coins you collect without having bought this, the, the more the value of this decreases. And the interesting thing is that this used to be actually a dollar. And then, I guess it was so popular, they bumped it to two dollars. And I guess it was so popular, they said, okay, well, we'll just sell it for five dollars now. And so what this game does... Is that for a non-payer? It mathematically you're you're just forced into suffering a slow rate of progress. It doesn't matter how good you are. Okay, so let's look at a couple other games and see what they do as far as this goes. Uh, anyone played Real Racing Three? Oh, cool. Okay, more than zero, so that's awesome. Okay, so this was a game that um, I'm just curious out of you guys, like uh, how much, how long did you play it? Maybe an hour? How about you over there? Yeah, Okay. Okay, no one's played this for more than an hour? Okay, well, I'll tell you what happens when you play it for more than an hour. So, uh, let me briefly describe the system of this game. So, it's a racing game, right? It's an action game. It's steering on the left. There's an earthquake. Um, (laughs) The earthquake is not part of the game, okay? (laughs) Okay. so you have you have regular currency, which is that RS on the screen, and then the premium currency is those helmet coins. So you get RS when, you know, that's just the money. So you get money when you finish a race. You spend money on new cars. You have to do uh, repair and service. So repairs is when you make a mistake and run into something. Services, you just have to regularly, like these these things just go down over time with use, and so you just have to perform maintenance regularly, even if you don't crash. And in the beginning... Uh, this seems totally fine. It's like, okay, well, you know, there's a system here, and it's balanced, and if I make a mistake, I lose money, but I can manage it by being really good, and I can... It really feels like, especially to me, it felt like uh, the paying players were subsidizing my play because I felt like I could actually overcome uh, anything that was happening in this game with sufficient skill. And it even felt that way even more because one of the hooks to this game is that you are actually racing against lap times that other people have gotten. So, you're not literally racing against them, but you're racing against their lap times. And so, right, if you're actually better than them, then you should be able to beat their lap times, too. So, this feels really good at first. But what happens is, gradually, and I mean very gradually, over, like, yeah, I played that much, 50 to 70 hours. (laughs) Skill. Let me tell you how it felt. <laughs> Skill gradually becomes less and less of a factor, just like it did in Joyride. But it's just, like, stretched now even farther than... Because uh, Jetpack Joyride was, like, six hours to to get through the whole game, or at least all the challenges they have you do. And this one is, like, ten times that, at least. And so what happens is, is that, you know, your upgrades at first, you know, they seem abundant, but then gradually they start to cost more and the gains become uh, more and more smaller. So like down here is an example. Like here's the upgrade screen early on in the game. You know, you get like, oh, I got like the whole uh, looks like uh, four uh, tenths of a foot of brake power extra. So that that seems like a lot. And it only costs 3,000 RS, which is not a lot. Uh, So you get good value for your upgrades. But then like real late in the game, if you look on the right side, it doesn't turn into German because it's late in the game. But what you notice, what you notice, is that your upgrades, uh, the increases that you get from the upgrades, become smaller and smaller and smaller, and they feel like you're getting almost nothing. Where the cost goes up drastically, and this isn't like um, this isn't like your normal curve in a typical game, where okay, well, at the end things cost more expensive and you have to manage resources. This is much more drastic than that. This is to the point where you're like, I can't believe I'm getting this little for this much cost, right? What else happens is that, notice over there, right, that's not even in the same currency that this is. You don't know this until you get there, and that's why you spend this much time with it. You don't know that they, they, they actually change on you the currency they use. They start charging you premium currency for the premium upgrades, for the, for the upgrades later on in the game. And other stuff happens that make it even worse like the cars that you get the more advanced cars they're so brittle you can and they're so easy to crash and so on and so forth. Okay, how about Candy Crush Saga? Yes.
2: Sorry.
0: <laughs> Who hasn't played Candy Crush? You have not played Candy Crush all of you people? Wow. I keep
5: getting requests. That's That's why I haven't played it. I haven't
0: it. Wow. Okay, so a lot of people haven't played it, which I'm surprised, but let me tell you a couple things about it. So a similar sort of dynamic happens here, where there's specific levels, like, I don't know, maybe it's level 35 is one of them, where if you don't use boosts, and what the boosts do is, like, there's an example of a boost on the right. What the boosts do is that they let you, um they just give you greater agency in the game, and some of them are more like, um, they just give you uh, an extra boost right away, and some of them you have to use a little bit of technique to use. But anyway, what happens is is that you get to a certain point, and there's a certain level, and the developers are aware of this level, and they've authored it deliberately as such, where if you don't use a boost on that level, actually, um, you have maybe like a 2% chance to pass the level. And by that I mean, and I want to be really specific about this, you have a 2% chance to pass the level... At maximum possible skill, which means that if you suppose every single move you make is the exact optimal move that you could possibly make, then you still have a 2% chance, right? Which means that you could try 50 times, and you might not pass the level. Or you can just pay a dollar or two to increase your odds uh, up to, like, way over 100 pretty easily, right? And the other thing they do is that they have... they do this oscillating difficulty on purpose because it applies the psychology to the player that some people call push-pull, which is actually the same. This is the same dynamic as that random thing in the beginning with Jetpack Joyride I was telling you guys about. Um, Why would you want to randomize the difficulty of a game from moment to moment? It's so you can apply this psychology onto the player. Okay, how about Puzzle and Dragons? Who's played this? Okay, so that was like 5% or less. Sorry. Yeah. So this is like a uh, this is like a huge game in Japan. Like it's one of the biggest money making games in the world, isn't it? There you go. But no- go ahead, say for everybody, please. Three million a day. Worldwide. Yeah. So worldwide, it's huge. Here, not as much. Um, but what's that? Yeah. Don't play it. He says. <laughs> okay. So let me tell you guys about the monetization in this game. It looks very simple, but it's actually incredibly sophisticated. So Puzzle & Dragons is a match-three style game, like Bejeweled. And uh, it's kind of been described as like Bejeweled plus like Pokemon, okay? So you have cards, like that's a card. Every, like cards and monsters is a term used interchangeably. Uh, You capture cards, you like subsume them within each other, and you can power them up by giving them experience points in that way. And uh, it's got a whole system for that. And the only thing they sell you is the premium currency, which is magic stones. And that costs a dollar, or there's also a bulk proposition. Uh, But these four things are the only four things. um, There's one, but it doesn't count. It's not important. That um, No, trust me, it's true. That that you can actually spend magic stones on. So uh, if you die in a dungeon, you can use a magic stone to continue. Um, There's a stamina bar... You guys know about the stamina bar? Sure. Okay, I'm going to tell you something really crazy about the stamina bar. Why... Do, do people know why there are stamina bars in these games? Especially not a to, increase to increase retention. To increase retention. Yes. It is to increase retention. Do you know by what mechanism it increases retention? Yes. Okay. So, I'm going to break it down a little further, if I may. So, here's what happens, right? Anytime you decide to do an activity, like, let's say, uh, play Puzzle and Dragon. No, let's not do that one. That one has a stamina bar. Like, play Battletoads, okay? You have a certain amount of interest level that already made you decide that you wanted to play Battletoads at this time, right? And so, you play Battletoads for a session... And your interest level kind of changes over time, right? It'll probably increase up to a point. And then there's a, you know, you're not going to play infinitely. You're going to stop playing after a moment or two, or after some period of time. And when you decide to stop playing, your interest level is naturally lower than it was at the beginning or maybe in the middle, right? Now, what the stamina bar does, right, is it's like, okay, let's say you were going to play Battletoads for this long, a period of time, Okay? So now I'm playing Battletoads and now I'm getting more interested and I'm more interested and now okay now you can't play anymore your stamina bar ran out. At the point that I was most interested in playing more they cut me short and they didn't let me to play again. And they said, "Nope. You got to wait 2 hours and 37 minutes before you can play again." And what this does or you can just pay some money So some people are like, I'm just going to restore to them and I want to keep playing. But even if you don't do that, what this does is that it actually puts you on their schedule, but not only that, right? Because they cut you off at the point where you were maximally engaged with the product, you're now even more eager to return to it than you would have been otherwise if you had just been left to your own devices to decide when to play and when to stop playing. And so what happens over time is that even if you don't take the bait, the bait, You're actually more engaged with the game, and I bet you will spend much more time, and you will have spent much more time playing that game than you would have if there wasn't this device to manipulate when you get to play and when you don't get to play. Yeah, they're creating scarcity so that you wanted more, right? So it's like the game is playing you. What's that? Ah uh, yeah, sometimes it, yeah, it could what be. Is well, no, never
6: mind.
0: What what were you saying? What example? Yeah. cookie clicker. Okay. <laughs> that is that is yeah, I haven't played it myself, but that sounds like uh that's probably like a clicker, I'm guessing.
5: Clicking on cookies
0: this time. Yeah. <laughs> mhm. Yeah, this is how they get you to play more than you'd want to. The game's entirely free, so... Well, yeah. If you
5: want to suck away hours <laughs> of your life staring at a
0: screen, that's the way. Yeah, well, this is a good way to do it, too, because they have a lot of devices here. So anyway, to continue, right? Another thing you can do is there's, there's this monster box in this game, okay? a monster box is basically the capacity of how many cards you can hold, and it has a limited capacity. So you can pay to increase that up to uh, virtually as much as you want. And then there's this other thing called an egg machine. There's a rare egg machine, and if you want to pull that to get one thing out of it, that costs uh, a value of $5. So here's what this game does. When you first start playing, uh, Magic Stones, the premium currency, they're incredibly abundant at first. And then, uh, just like in the other games, it becomes scarce, but then they do this thing where it's unpredictably scarce and abundant again. And so I'm going to talk a- more about that later. Um and then we also do this thing where there's these limited time events that uh, go completely crazy. But the point here is that it's a very similar structure to all the other games. Are they having like a dance party up there or what? Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park is up there, okay. <laughs> okay, so now let's talk about gameplay depth and monetization, okay? Now, you might not know this, but the way you monetize a game... The technique you use to do so, regardless of what that is, is actually completely independent of not only the depth of the gameplay, but the character of the gameplay itself. And it doesn't seem that way just because most of the examples we've seen of these types of products, they've just been very commonly paired with really stupid, shallow gameplay. Um, But just because we've seen millions of examples of these doesn't mean that that's necessarily so. And in fact, it is not so. And I'll, I'll show you an example in a minute. I think this is probably a side effect of the background of the people who the, are, are prevailingly building and architecting these kinds of games because they seem to have uh, great expertise in systematically basically controlling the outcomes of the uh, statistical experiences, but they don't seem to be experiencing creating deep, play, deep gameplay, and in fact, that's what you're seeing reflected in uh, even a lot of the most successful products. But here's the crazy thing, is that the essential gameplay in Puzzle & Dragons, it's actually very, very deep, and it's actually incredibly well-designed. And in fact, I would go so far as to say this is downright a designer's wet dream. And I'm going to prove it to you. So the first thing is that the game is essentially... It's, it's super-duper high accessibility. Not only is it a style of game that is really accessible and familiar to lots of people who aren't uh, the so-called hardcore demographic... But it's even more acceptable than all of those possible variants, because not only can you uh, not make an invalid move, there are actually no invalid moves to make. And I'll show you in a moment. And it actually has a super deep learning curve that extends beyond 100 hours of practice. And I'm going to go through all these steps so you can see how this is true. Uh, there's a lot of intermediate stages of learning where the dynamics of the game change But they're not intrinsically changing, it's just that the feel changes as you get better. I mean, this is like truly one of the most, uh, important things you can do in a learning curve of a process because that's what keeps you engaged with it if it actually starts to feel different as you develop in being able to perform that uh, activity, whatever it is. And the late game is actually, uh, it's actually a variant of Rubik's Cube, which is, we all know is a super deep thing. And, of course, another uh, thing that makes it the designer's wet dream is that it's an almost infinite ceiling of skill. You're only bounded by how fast you can move your finger and how fast you can think. And that's an incredibly good quality to have uh, for gameplay. And then, of course, thirdly, learning over this curve is actually relatively easy because just in the intrinsic dynamics of the gameplay that I'm going to describe to you, It's pretty easy as you're practicing to notice what the next deeper thing is to do to perform the game better. Okay, so let's go through. So we're going to go through the steps like in those learning curves I showed you at the beginning. We're going to go through like these sequential steps of how the game changes as you get better at it while the game, the rules are actually staying the same. So in the beginning, so that's the screen of the game. Bottom half is the Bejeweled business. Top half is the Pokemon business, I guess. Those row of uh, five, six cards are uh, five of your cards and then a helper card that you take from a friend. And then those are the enemies up there. Your life meter's in the middle. And those are gameplay areas on the bottom there. And the first thing you notice when you play is, oh, wait a minute, I can just drag anything and drag it to anything, just like that arrow. You literally have no restrictions whatsoever. And if you play games a lot, your first reaction might be, wow, this is really stupid. And it is stupid on the face of it. But the beautiful thing is that for somebody who isn't experienced, this makes it maximally easy for them to apprehend what's going on here and for them to understand. So the floor of accessibility is incredibly low. Now, one thing I'll tell you that's important to know about the depth in this game is that anytime you perform a drag, uh, like dragging that blue one to the yellow one, you can actually drag freely for a period of roughly four seconds before you're forced to put the piece down that you're dragging. And why is this important? Well, after you play the game for a few hours, you start to notice that, well, every time I move a piece, all the pieces around it are actually dragged behind it. And if you keep playing, then you'll start to notice that, hey, I can actually make matches dragging a piece and not actually involve directly that piece that I'm dragging. So you can do something like this. You can take that heart, right, move it two left and one down, and that causes the result on the left because those two red pieces were dragged behind it and they shifted over. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah, so this is incredibly cool because now this is where the possibility and the depth starts opening up to you as a player and you start to realize uh, how much could actually be possible even though at the beginning it seemed really stupid. So then after, you know, you're playing and you've committed even more time into the product, you might notice that, uh, well, some combos take me a long time, a long path to drag, and some don't. And you realize that there's actually a lot of equivalent moves that you can make. Like these two moves are actually the equivalent result Just the one on the, uh, the second one there, you know, takes you four times as little time and space on the board, so it's much better to do, because you have that four second time limit, right? And then you keep playing the game, and then you start, you know, after around 50 hours, you start to approach what I'm calling Rubik's Square Land, which, uh, this is actually, this is like a 2D analogy of Rubik's Cube, basically. You start doing these incredibly complex moves where you're actually folding upon yourself and, retreading a path you took and you're doing you know circles and all these complicated paths and stuff like this. And when you get to the late game, there's still new things to learn. Even after 50, 60, 70 hours, uh, you get these new abilities. Like, for example, uh, normally you have four seconds to move an orb, right? Well, there's an ability that gives you ten seconds. On the face of it, that doesn't change much, right? It actually completely changes the dynamics, because when there's four seconds, what do you do? You plan out what you're going to do, and then you're like, okay, because you only have four seconds, and then you're like, then you perform it, right? And four seconds is just barely enough for you to be able to plan that out and then do it. And so the skill involved is more in like executing the route that you planned and how you know, how long of a or how complicated a route are you going to plan. But when you have ten seconds to do it, you can't think ahead. You can't think ahead at all. You just have to start going, and you just have to think on the fly as you go. And so the dynamics are very, very different. It's really fascinating. But the rules are basically the same still. And that's a very, very elegant depth, I think. But nevertheless, even with such a deep game and such a really, really awesome learning curve, the randomization interference is in this game and it still disrupts this game and it still can disrupt in the same way that we saw in all the other examples and what's more, you know, Puzzle and Dragon is really, really good at wreaking havoc on your emotions because of the uh, random inputs and outputs that uh, basically, it's the specific way in which they overpower your skill. It's not even just that they overpower your skill at a point. Because, you know, what happens is, well, okay, all of these things happen with random frequency at random times, Right? So you'll get, for example, randomly hugely successful without having learned anything new. Uh, but then sometimes you'll learn how to do something new, right? You'll get better at the game, but your result will be dampened because of the random outcome of things. Uh, so that'll work against you in the other direction. And usually, right, because most people don't actually study this stuff and figure out, oh, well... Uh, these outcomes are happening because of, you know, these random processes and this is why. People don't study that. So usually they just attribute it to, okay, well, I'm just not good enough yet. And we've seen this before, actually. This is nothing new. This kind of dynamic is what some people have called rubber banding in other games, right? Rubber banding came to be because it describes, like, let's say you're racing, right? Like in Mario Kart, where the further behind you are from the leader the faster you can catch up, right? So that's why they call it rubber banding. And it does all of these bad things, you know? It does all of these things that conflate and confound your ability to uh, basically bear fruit from the new things that you've learned in the game. But then on other times, right, it, it works in the other direction. So, okay, now I'm going to talk about uh, some really interesting compulsion devices that Puzzle & Dragons uses specifically. So, okay, remember I was talking about magic stones? They do some crazy manipulations with these magic stones. And I'll tell you why it is that it seems abundant at first and it becomes scarce later. Well, you get a magic stone for doing various things for free, right? So I think if you log in consecutively over a period of time, you might get a free stone, but those are pretty uncommon. Uh, but the main way you get a free magic stone is if you complete a dungeon, a series of dungeons for the first time, right? So the, the main game is, consists of a linear battery of dungeons, just like most games, normal progression. And if you clear a set of dungeons, you get a free magic stone. Well, what happens in the beginning of the game? It's really easy to clear a lot of dungeons. So you get the impression that, okay, well, you know, I'm putting this much time. I'm getting, you know, magic stones at about this rate. Uh, You would normally expect this to continue, give or take, right? Well, that's not what happens. What happens is that at a point, it becomes incredibly scarce. You stop getting magic stones because your progress in the game basically grinds to a halt for the same reasons that we showed in those other examples, right? And so if you're not able to continuously progress through new dungeons and clear them, you can't get any new magic stones, right? So then you're like, okay, well, you know, magic stones were abundant and I had a lot of them, but then I spent them all because I thought there were lots of them and now there's no many and it's a, it's a magic stone desert now, right? But then what they do is, unpredictably, they do these promotions where for a short period of time, for a week, you get a magic stone every day. So now this like lulls you into this sense of like, oh, magic stones are common again. You know, oh, you know, I can spend a magic stone now. I just got one yesterday. I'm getting one tomorrow. No problem, Right? But what they do is that this happens for a very short amount of time. And for a much longer time, uh, you go back into this desert land. And I think what this is doing is systematically, it's confusing players to think that this resource is actually uh, more common than it really is. You feel like it's not scarce, but it's actually very scarce. And of course, when you feel like something is not scarce, you're apt to use it. Okay, so they did another promotion over the summer, and in order to explain this to you, I have to explain something called PAL points. Okay, so there's these things called PAL points, and you need 200 of them to pull this thing called the PAL egg machine, and you accrue them... If you don't spend money at the game to, to jockey around with the stamina meter, you'll normally hope the best you can hope to get is around 200 of these a day, right? So with this promotion, every single user for one week basically got 2,000 PowerPoints every single day. So that's 10,000 total. That's 10 monsters that you're getting from this machine every single day, whereas you'd normally be accustomed to getting like one a day. If you play a lot. So at first, this sounds like a huge, incredible bonus, right? Well, maybe on the second or third day that this is happening, you might notice a couple of funny things. If it's not apparent already to a player, what they discover at this point is that the monsters you get from the PAL Egg machine are, for the most part, total junk. And what you also don't realize at first is that because you're getting so many monsters from this machine, what's it doing? Well, I talked about this thing called the monster box, which has a limited size. So if it has a limited size and you're getting all these monsters, what happens? Well, now your monster box is filling up at a rate faster than it has ever done before. And it's very, very likely to reach an overfilled state, right? Once you reach more monsters than your monster box can hold, you're not allowed to play dungeons. You have to do something. So this is a promotion that was disguised as a bonus which actually forced people to make a decision. So what's the decision that players were forced into. Well, they have four choices once uh, they suffer this promotion. Okay, so what do you do with all these junk monsters? Well, you can sell them, but you get a pittance of coins from them. So it kind of feels like you're throwing away like the free stuff you just got. So you could do that, but it's not the most satisfying thing. And I don't know, what if you need them for some reason? Some people feel the need to want to keep everything they get. You can use these and power up other monsters with them, but the problem is this is also incredibly wasteful on your resources because it it turns out that using these monsters nets you almost no significant amount of EXP for your other monsters, and it ends up costing a lot of coins. Uh, You can manage your resources one by one. You can totally do that. That's what I do. This is the most cognitively challenging choice, by the way. This is the one that demands the most out of you out of all these, or... You could just buy greater capacity. And the thing that makes this interesting is that now you're using premium currency. If you do this at the end of this promotion or during this promotion, now you're using premium currency, which would have cost you either a magic stone or money, where you wouldn't have if it weren't for the promotion. And it also turns out that, right, this is the least strategically risky. It's the least committal. Right? Because you get to keep all your resources this way, and you don't have to make any hard decisions about them yet. But it's the one that costs money. Okay, so they do something crazy with uh, the game progression in Puzzle & Dragons too. Once you play the game for a while, and you figure out what the most optimal way is to power up your monsters, because that's like one of the fundamental things you do in the game, right? you have to power them up so that they're strong enough to do the harder dungeons and so on and so forth. Well, you gradually realize that uh, in order to play in the most optimal benefit for the player, you have to engage in this, like, incredibly complicated schedule. And it's just an intrinsic artifact of the way the game's designed. It's really crazy. So it turns out that when you want to do a fusion, right, to power up a monster, um, the most optimal way to do that is to wait until you have five monsters to do it with because you can uh, only fuse with up to five at a time and every time you perform a fusion the cost for the next fusion goes up. So you want to fuse with as many as you, monsters as you can at a time. So this means that you want to defer monsters in your monster box until you have five, okay? So that means you got to like keep five spots open on your monster box. But now it gets worse because it also is very optimal to fuse monsters of the same element. There's five different element colors. If you use the same element, you get a 50% bonus, which is huge. So, we're not leaving five spots open for these. We're leaving 25 spots open for these. Uh, But now it gets even better because uh, there are specific monsters that are especially optimal to fuse with, and these are what are called uh, Dragon Kings or uh, other kinds of dragons, and uh, what's called an evolved pangra, right? Well, if you want to find some kings, uh, they only appear in these uh, one-hour limited-time dungeons that uh, only appear for three arbitrary hours in the day, and you can only know uh, what hours they show up on, not more than 24 hours beforehand, uh, by looking at a certain website. And, okay, I'm going to knock this over eventually. Uh, And then... When you do these one hour dungeons, right, what you get mostly out of them, you get a lot of volume of the smaller dragons, not the king dragon. And what you want to do with these small dragons is you want to actually, uh, you want to eventually get to an evolved pangra, Because the small dragons will give you like 3,000 experience points, right? And then there's a pangra that'll give you like 9,000. Um, but you want to get the evolved Pengra because that one will get you 45,000, which is way more. But to get to that point, you have to find, uh, like, one of these dragons at one of these hourly dungeons. Then uh, you have to get this other thing that's called Dragon Plant. And, oh, yeah, Dragon Plant, that's only readily available on Thursdays. So wait for Thursday all week long. Or um, alternatively, if you don't like to wait for a Thursday, you can farm them somewhere else. And you can accrue them at a rate that's, like, a tenth or less at what you would get on Thursday. Um, but then there's even more because uh, you have to also get these things called pangra. And so you have to have the same color pangra and the same color uh, dragon and the dragon plant. And you put them all together, and then that's how you get an evolved pangra. And so basically the end of this is that this is the optimal way to play the game. And what this is doing is it's actually causing it's putting extreme amount of strain on your monster box right This is what they want it's actually causing your monster box to expand up to its limit and then compress back down when you finally perform those um, those power up pieces, right and so constantly you're, you're, you're basically li- reaching the limit of your monster box's capacity and. Everything is an opportunity for them to say, hey, it's a really good time to buy more monster boxes, right? And this happens very frequently, right? And here's the thing, right? So just like I explained the other examples, so even if you use these techniques, right, these are the optimal techniques to use, you get about quarter million per fuse, but the big, best monsters in the game take about three to five million experience to fully power up anyway. So, A quarter million isn't actually even a lot. If you don't do this, you have to suffer extremely, extremely low rates of progress. So my hypothesis with this is that I think that they've purposely constructed this kind of complex schedule because what this does is that this gets you practiced into engaging with the game and then going away from it and then engaging with the game and then going away from it at a much higher frequency than would ever happen naturally. And a byproduct, I think, of that engagement and releasing is that you're now, you're now more apt to start checking the game even when you don't, when you know it's not the time to go back to play. You know, you know, okay, my stamina's gonna recover enough in three hours and, you know, fifteen minutes and that's the next time I can play and I gotta cancel this dinner cause I wanna play this instead. All right, sorry? It kind of does. But but and yet you spend more time with it. Right? Yeah. Did someone say something over here?
6: How much
1: time have you put
0: into that game? What this? We'll talk about that at the end.
1: It's (laughs) probably (laughs) a little bit off topic, but this seems to be an Asian thing. Creating these hugely
5: complicated game mechanics in order to encourage players to play more.
0: Um why do you say that it's intrinsically Asian, though?
5: Because, let's take uh, Pokemon, for example. Um, with the IV mechanics, the EV mechanics, and all the fun stuff involved in the breeding system of it, uh, most of the Final Fantasy games, hunting down the ultimate weapons, usually requires some incredibly complex number of steps in order to do things that you would never do in the game normally.
0: Yeah, but I don't think that's necessarily Asian. I mean, there's western games that are incredibly complicated systematically too, right? I couldn't think of any off from the top of my head. American football. <laughs> okay, there's one. Stacy, <laughs> like like the Asian market has gotten really big. And I I say that in a good way. Because yeah. Well, for whatever this is worth, the team that made this game was six people, and they did not anticipate the success of this game. So, yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's sort of the trope of
2: like the uh, the JRPG, which was then based upon like the really like kind of uh, high like high um, combination system of like
0: D and D and stuff like that. Which yeah, a yeah. Inner moving part where you can like, lock together. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I'm going to move on. No, 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 you spoke already. I'm not going to do you (laughs) twice. That's okay. We'll have have more time at the end. We're getting close to the end, I promise. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about the continue proposition, okay? So you can continue. You have a chance to continue if you lose all your health in a dungeon, right? And if you want to continue, then you have to use a magic stone. And at first, this also sounds like a really stupid thing, right? Because, well, the magic stone is valuable. And the thing is, is the reason why it seems obviously a bad deal is because the way these dungeons are constructed, usually there's like, uh, I don't know, one or five or ten uh, battles in a dungeon. It's just a battery of battles. And what they do is that the hard one, they're all pretty easy until the end. So the one that really counts is the last one. And the rest of them are like... Pretty much Mickey Mouse compared to the last one. So if you die, it is extremely likely that you'll get killed again in the same dungeon. So on the face of it, very bad deal, right? I don't want to take that deal. But if you think about it, there's actually, this was constructed to take advantage of some precise context in which now this decision is no longer trivial. So let's say, for example, you've already continued three times in this dungeon and you die again. Well, if I say no to continue now, I will have lost three magic stones forever. I've wasted them. i just thrown them away for no reason. But if I spend four and I finish the dungeon, then it's four magic stones that I've spent to finish the dungeon. So they seem purposeful. But it can get worse. Let's say you've like, spent an hour on this boss battle. This happens sometimes in this game just because of the way the rules work out. So now you spent, let's say, a half an hour. Like, let's not even go to an hour. Let's say you spend a half hour and something stupid happens and game over. And you're pretty sure you can finish the level and beat the guy. Is a half hour worth a dollar of your time? But it can get even worse because there's rare drops in this game. Then they're very, very rare. You'll get, like, a 1% chance or less of in many, many cases. right? What that means is that if you try the dungeon a hundred times, you have a 50-50 chance of getting that rare item. So now suppose it's one of those times where you got that one of a hundred and you got the rare item and you die. Now are you going to continue? Are you going to spend, because it's a one in a hundred event, how many times is it worth continuing to keep that rare item? It's not so clear. Okay, rare egg machine. This is the last one of these. So I talked about the Pal Egg Machine. They also have this thing called the rare egg machine. It works differently. Um, the gist of it is similar in that it's uh, it costs something. It costs five magic stones for one pull, and then an egg comes out, right? And what this machine does is it actually... It kind of misleads the player and obfuscates uh, the deal that they're involved in because there's a couple things happening here that the player is not aware of. One of them is that um, there's a bunch of monsters that this is the only way you can get them, right? Not just pay for them. The only way you can get them is to pay for a random chance to get one of them. And the fact that this is presented alongside the PAL egg machine leads one to believe that, okay, well, uh, PAL eggs or maybe, you know, stupid worthless eggs come out of the PAL egg machine and rare eggs or valuable things come out of the rare egg machine. And what they don't tell you is that it's actually just as frequent to get junk out of the rare egg machine as it is the PAL egg machine. It's just a conflation of terminology because what they decided in this game was that um, okay, all the cards in this game are ranked from, like, one to, I think, seven stars. Well, the rank of three stars is considered rare. It's not rare. It's capital R rare, okay? All the ones that are three stars are, like, really common, superfluous things that uh, don't really mean much to you. And so all they mean is, in this egg machine, you will get three star eggs or above, and... Uh, Of course, that doesn't sound as exciting as rare eggs, and it doesn't sound as appealing. And they do a lot of promotions, like two times odds, and so on and so forth. they'll they'll give you a list of monsters, and they'll say, you know, these have a higher rate to come out. But they don't tell you the true odds. You have no sense of what the odds are whatsoever. And what happens, and I'm going to show you some quotes, I believe that this is characteristic of people's experience with this thing, okay? This one guy spent 20 gems. This is roughly equivalent to $20. And he got crap. This guy spent roughly equivalent to $25. And um, I guess the best he got was uh, one thing to write home about, whatever that means. Um, But this is what happens, right? I mean, I invite you to try it if you don't believe me. It'll cost you a lot of money and you won't get a lot out of it. This is actually, yeah, this is the most analogous thing to real gambling in any of uh, these systems that I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes you don't anyway. That's, that's the thing. Okay, so I want to conclude with uh, a bunch of thoughts about all this. Okay, so the first thing is that, look, something that is happening for a fact <laughs> is that people are experiencing buyer's remorse from these dynamics. Why are they experiencing buyer's remorse? Well, it's because the systems are made in such a way it's so that uh, you spend a bunch of money without realizing it. But it's not that you never realize it; it's that you realize it at a point that's um, actually kind of like kind of maximal for trauma, right? Because, for example, uh, you know this one woman who did an article on what was this on um, Gawker, I think, right? So Candy Crush, you just spend money a dollar or two at a time, right? You have no visibility unless uh, you're the type to you know keep track of all your transactions, keep a running tally unless you're that type, um, you just spend a dollar here. This is what she did. Just spend a dollar here, a dollar there, not thinking about it. End of the month comes, oh, I've probably spent a couple bucks on this game, maybe 20 bucks. No, $236. And she never intended to spend $236. So like, think about that effect on you if it wasn't intentional and you discover after deferring a whole month, right? You wait a whole month and then you realize you've spent this massive money Uh, you're going to be pretty remorseful if that's your experience, especially if $236 is a meaningful sum to you. And so the question is, look, some people are feeling remorseful. How is this going to affect their behavior? Are they going to be leaving, actually, this industry because of this effect? And if so, how great is that effect? Uh, Okay, this is where I want to show you guys a short video. Uh, Anyone heard of the name Robert Sapolsky? You don't count, you count, you count too. Okay, that's awesome. Um, so I'm going to show you a brief clip about what he says about dopamine and how this relates. I hope we have sound. Oh, boy. Um, no. Wait, that means I can't play it. Yes? Okay. I'm s- so glad this is pretending to work so far.
2: For a TV. Thank you. The world is thinking.
4: This monkey has been trained that when the little light comes on, it's one of those sessions where I can now get food. And it knows that if I press this lever 10 times, after a little bit of a delay, I'll get some food. If I press the lever 10 more times, I'll get some more food. what we have here, we have first a signal, the light coming on saying it's one of those sessions. We're starting one of those. Then the monkey does the work. And then with a delay, it gets the reward. And what everyone initially thought was dopamine would go up after the reward. That's not when it goes up. It goes up when the signal comes on. What's this? This is the monkey there sitting and saying, I know this. I know the drill. I know this. I'm on top of this. This is going to be great. I know what I do now. This is completely perfect. 100% I'm going for today. Dopamine is not about pleasure. It's about the anticipation of pleasure. It's about the pursuit of happiness rather than happiness itself. And what's most remarkable is experimentally, if you block that rise of dopamine from occurring, you don't get the work, you don't get the behavior. This is not only the anticipation, but this is what is capable of eliciting goal-directed behavior amazing elaboration on this, which now begins to tell us something real familiar. Okay, so in this study, elaboration, rather than this design, you press the lever the right number of times, you get reward. Do the work, you get a reward 100% of the time. That's how it works. Now instead shift to where you get the reward only 50% of the time. You do the work, and only about half the time you get the reward. So what happens to dopamine levels there? This is what they do they go through the roof. Because what have you just done? You've introduced the word maybe into the equation. And maybe is addictive like nothing else out there. Because the light comes on and you're doing the... I know how this works, this is going to be great, but I screwed up last time because I didn't get the food, but this time I'm feeling good today, but I'm a total screw-up, and I'm inadequate in, in junior high school, and it was terrible, and I'm but maybe this time I, I lost Just that vast- ahead. What we see here is dopamine comes pouring out like mad. It's the uncertainty of the reward. And here's the really elegant thing they did in that study. Now, instead of a 50% reward rate percent or 75%. These are diametrically opposite states. Worse news, better news, the only thing they have in common is you've decreased the level of unpredictability, and the rise in dopamine winds up being halfway between the 50% and 100 And what's this about? This is the world of brilliant social engineering by humans, say, in Las Vegas, who understand how to design a place to take a curve where somebody has a gazillionth of percent chance... Reward and making you think because it's this special day in this casino and you especially are so much tilted to the right that you are going to get and humans are profoundly manipulable in this realm and it turns out so are other species the exact same neurochemistry so what winds up being you
0: okay we're going to stop at other species Okay, so I have a hypothesis about this. And I really wish I could talk to a neuroscientist about it. So if it's true that you get the most amount of dopamine release when success is most uncertain, maybe that's because that's when there exists the greatest potential learning in a natural situation, right? Because think about it. When you're in a situation where you're most uncertain about, that, about an outcome right either you know nothing about it whatsoever in which the situation is totally novel to you or you're most uncertain because you have a bunch of reasons why this could happen and a bunch of reasons why that could happen and you have so many reasons you're not sure right and here's the thing right in in normal situations in natural situations we don't have things like random number generators to affect the outcome of things generally speaking right like when we learn we learn through Deterministic things, we observe things and then we notice what happens, and things for the most part are generally deterministic, and that's what allows us to learn from them. Well, when an outcome is governed by a number, a random number generator, uh, it's like the part of your brain, I think, especially the part of your brain that interacts with dopamine, is not able to distinguish this from any other situation. It's just there's an opportunity to learn here what's going to happen, right? And it treats it the exact same way. And I'm thinking somehow dopamine is essential in this way for learning, but yet when there's a random number generator governing the outcome, at that point, it feels exactly the same, even though um, they're very, very different types of things. So what happens is your brain, you're actually getting reward from your brain for mastering something, then you, you haven't actually mastered it. So you're getting the feeling of it without the agency that you're normally getting out of it. And this seems very dangerous to me, because you're getting this reward value of mastery, uh, but you're getting it through these shortcuts. You're not getting it through what you would otherwise have to use concentrated effort to get. And if you expose somebody cumulatively for a period of time in this type of training it seems to me like this would train somebody to become less resilient in undertaking things in general because it's so easy to get the result without actually going through it the hard way, right? So here's another angle with it, right? So this dynamic of the limit of learning, right? You can learn. You can figure out and get better at this game. You can improve your station in life when just related to this game by practice, right? Your brain doesn't know that it's just limited to games. This is a practice that you're engaging in, and so if you're practicing and engaging in these in these activities, where these activities are telling you, well, okay, it's uh, you can learn, but only up to a point, and while well, you can persevere, right? But if and whenever you're able to persevere, it's strictly through statistical draw. It's not through actually applying the agency that you've learned. I kind of get the sense that these. Maybe teaching people to become more helpless because if practice and learning, right, if these games are telling you that you, telling you not just through words, but through the actual practice of performing the game, that you can only improve your situation up to a point, right, and then it's not possible, well, if that's true, then that's necessarily compromising yourself of self efficacy. Does somebody, can somebody tell me what a definition of self efficacy is? Uh, close, but not exactly. Self-efficacy is your belief in being effective. Get it? So it's how much you believe that you can exert an effect on things. Right? So that's kind of compromised because the game is training you that you can't. You can only do that up to a point. Well, there's this study. These uh, smart people did a study in the Journal of Psychology, Personality and Social Psychology in 2002, and they did this research where they studied uh, four things, right? Self-esteem, neuroticism, locus of control, and generalized self-efficacy. And does everybody know what locus of control is? I'll just tell you. Locus of control is a sense of whether you are internally in control of what happens to you or is the control of what happens to you external to you, right? So people who are highly self-efficacious have a strong centralized locus of control, whereas people who aren't feel like there's other things around them that determine what deter- like what uh, happens to them, and they're not in control of their own lives, right? So these people did this study, and they said, are these four things pretty much reflections of the same thing? And they found out, yes, they are, right? And if so, if this is true and that's true, then my question is, This is completely unintentional. Nobody wants this outcome, but by way of this practicing, are we eroding our self and value of self-efficacy? And how much is this going to spill over into other aspects of our lives? And that's actually the end. Yes. Yes. button, you know, you press the the street walk sign, prior to the sound effects that they make nowadays, Uh um, there was this really large
1: debate as to whether or not they were placebo buttons, whether they actually had no effect uh, as to whether or not you would be able to cross the street at that time, and it gave that sort of over-dramatization that uh, the speaker
3: had, You, you press the
1: button, and right when the light changes, wait, hold on, it still has the red hand. Stuff. Now I have to wait here for another three seconds. When really you did press. Maybe it received the signal, but the signal doesn't do anything. It's simply there for you. <laughs> <laughs> you can press. And you
0: feel
1: better, so that you can cross the It's the, it's the thought of you, you having contact. control over that sort of thing, the opportunity to be able to have control over that sort of thing. That's that's the that's the same sort of concept. That's interesting. It's a false. It it's a false
0: help. Yeah. yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what's so great about it. Well,
6: that's, I mean, during brush hour, it works like that. But oh, yeah. it, during the night, when there's sensors, it actually performs its purpose. So right. it gives that an overall effect of wishing something would happen and feeling like, oh, well, they just put it there to make me feel better. But it, it, that wasn't the original purpose.
0: I always thought you were supposed to press it 17 times, yeah. and then it would work.
6: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. You never
5: admitted how many hours you spent on Oh, yeah. I was hoping
0: you'd forget. Okay. Um, Good job, yeah. It's probably, like, north of 200.
5: Uh, you fun?
0: Well, see, here's the thing. Like, <laughs> I'm still playing it, and it's still interesting, and it's still painful, right? But the only reason why I'm still engaged with it is because there's a really surprising depth in the progression of those gameplay mechanics that... The funny thing is, right, like, I played all of these games while doing research for this in uh, no-pay mode, right? In other words, I refused to pay anything to play these games. The thing that was different about Puzzle & Dragons from all the other ones was that all the other ones, they just reached that point of transition where it was just random totally, and then it stopped... Where you know puzzle and dragons, they just they play with the relief valve. They kind of open it up and okay, have some fun. No, okay, now go away. Pay us money. Okay, no, you didn't pay us. Okay, here, come back. We're your friend again. And you know. Sorry.
5: have uh, a really strong Really well architected.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. How
5: much are they paying you? Because you
3: actually made me want
0: to play. The game. Wow. Then I should send them an invoice. <laughs> Yep. So
3: this is just internally how I feel about labeling these as games. And to me, these are more like interactive gambling than I mean, they are games. Like someone had brought up already. Yeah. Because to me, a game, that's like throughout my life when I've played games, there's always been resolution. There's been conflict, learning, and resolution. Right. Like at the end of the game, you finish it, and you feel good about it, you can put it away, you're done. But all of the examples you gave. How can they really be games when there is not that final resolution? Like yeah. you can literally play these forever, and you'll never finish it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so I don't think that final resolution is necessarily <coughs> same
3: thing. Like, there's no resolution at the end yeah. of these things. There's no
0: well, that that's true. But right, I mean, like yeah, like World of Warcraft or, or chess. I mean, there are other games that do not resolve either that are but
3: they have I guess certain story Yeah, chess resolves. There's a winner, yeah, yeah. Chess yeah. There's a winner there's in chess each game. But World of Warcraft also has a cap of like what you can actually accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at that point, you feel like... It's not infinite, you know what I mean? Like, there's content. With these infinite runner games like Jetpack, Joyride, yeah. literally, even if I get all the items, I can just keep playing and playing and jumping and going and going. It's the same... I don't
0: know, I just you can. I, I, I would say that the beginning of these games feels like a real game, right? But then if... Yeah, if and when it degenerates into the slot machine, then at that point, effectively, it is just the slot machine. And that's that's the game you're playing at that point. Okay, over there. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, I was thinking about uh, what, what games, like, that are, are pretty good games that don't have like evolution. And, um, like, Tetris, I would say, is a really great game. And, you know, you can play that for practically ever. Obviously, there is, like, like a, a kill screen. Yeah,
0: that's a pretty good example. Yeah. Okay, anyone, someone over here. Ben. Just out of curiosity. Yeah. helps you to share this with us? Um, because... I can't s- explain why, but I'm endlessly fascinated by w- these mechanisms. Do
1: you think value, this information? Like, i in so uh,
0: I just think it's intrinsically <laughs> valuable, just by virtue that it's... Yeah. I mean, it's... The thing is, is look, all these people who made these games, I don't even think most of them understand the depth of these dynamics to which I I think that these things... Because here's the thing. The process in which we were able to come up with, uh, we being these people who make these incredibly successful free-to-play games, the process in which they came to uh, fall on how the games work now is one where one does not need to understand the process whatsoever to take advantage of it because they're treating it like a black box. They are looking at their profits, they are changing the switches, they're looking how their profits change, and then they change the switches in order to maximize the profit value, right? And so one does not need to understand how these work in order to take advantage of them. And so I think the value is look, like these processes are psychologically incredibly powerful. So I think even beyond like just like my like, oh, I think it's cool and interesting, um, I think it's important for us to understand. How these processes work, and exactly how they're working, and what they do, because they may be able to use, be used uh, in ways that are actually uh, you know less coercive rather than more coercive, or we can learn other things about them that maybe we can predict. So that's my explanation. Okay, let's somebody. Sorry,
5: I'd like to hear that talk.
0: Yeah, fair enough. No, Next talk. Okay, uh, someone who hasn't gone yet. Um, you.
1: Assumption or even assertion that that game uh, because they're so in- internally it's so deep that that's why they're so successful as opposed to something not to throw out names but like Zynga would create like a farm bill or anything that eventually collapses because they have a, a business model as opposed to a business model and a psychological or game development understanding Yeah. And so you you not only, like you mentioned, they turn on and off the faucet, so instead of just being a business model where they just try to, you know, uh, limit your task, that eventually collapses when you try to raise the whole community playing that video game, as opposed to actually having a deep-rooted story, whatever you may call it, which is actually psychological.
0: Yeah. Plays
1: plays into all the types of video games, MMOs and any game ever created, Pac-Man, every, every, anything you ever want to have anybody do is play your video game, develop a video game that somebody just wants to play or everybody wants to play all the time, nonstop, and then you have these situations that arise where somebody forgets to feed their kids, somebody stabs their best friend, <laughs> forgets to stop playing after three days and dies, but...
0: Yeah, it's really hard to say. You know, when you have a game that has a lot of different uh, things that make it successful, it's really hard to say which one of those is the one, right? So do
1: you think it maybe is okay to assume that that's why this one's so successful because it has the right combination of
0: everything? Uh, I mean, if you, if you were to ask me, I would venture to say that, you know, like Puzzle and Dragons in particular, the reason why it does so well is because... Um, A lot of these mechanisms, right, they are, I think it's because they're actually playing with the Valve so frequently that because the other games don't do that and so when you're out, you're out. But they're kind of like, hey, come back, be my friend. And they do that more than the other games and I'm pretty sure that that is having some effect and that's one reason. But on the other hand, like I was saying, right, like the the systematic game independent of the monetization is pretty deep and pretty compelling too and that's got to contribute quite a bit. Yeah.
5: Do you have you ever seen any numbers on how long people play these games? I presume there's there's a huge in the beginning a tri popular game just drop off versus you know how long the ones are committed. Because there's, there's cute mechanics you can see in twiddling that because like with the, the dragons and cards or whatever that was, when when you puzzle dragons or what was it called? Puzzle and
0: dragons. Puzzle and dragons. I'll I'll accept any one of those. (laughs) Player
5: is expected to get deeper and learn the mechanics, learn the mechanics deeper, learn how to use the mechanics. And that kind of pulls away the magic and say, wow, I've got to do all this in order to just play the game. Do you see that you kind of tend towards burnout?
0: Yeah, but the thing is, right, they they introduce that at a point where you're already in it. And so since you're already involved in it, you're like far more willing to accept those chicaneries. And those chicaneries only become apparent to you gradually over time, which is another essential component. Because if they didn't, then you'd be like, whoa, you're asking me to do this on Thursday, and then on alternate Tuesdays do what? Like, no thank you.
5: But have you seen numbers on calendar times? How long- I,
0: I wish. I'm sure they're, most of those companies hold that information very close to them. Uh, the far left, yes, you. Uh, so I know I want
6: to touch on hypothesis, or perhaps propose my own. Okay. But I'd actually say that maybe these games match more of a lesson to learn about real life, where most single-player games will, what, maybe about, like, 40 hours of gameplay for, like, maybe a lot of first-person shooter single-player, and, like, anybody with enough time, <coughs> skill, you can get to the end, you can get there, you get that satisfaction, where life isn't really like that. You do have to put it in day-to-day, and you are going to learn, reach that ceiling where it's not all about skill and learning. There is going to be a lot of the draw. I mean, you could have a few thousand people want to be Supreme Court justices, but at some point, there's a luck at the draw
3: in there.
0: There is a distinction here, though, because in real life things, while luck is certainly an element of real life, and yeah, you know, like, if you want to be a Supreme Court justice, uh, or whatever, like, high-profile thing, right? Like, I'm sure, like, a successful game developer, right? Like, you have to be good, and you have to be kind of lucky, too, but i think uh, i don't think it's fair to compare them though i think that there's a distinction between them because uh in these types of processes when you are getting by you're not getting by by learning
6: but it is a perseverance as opposed
0: to it it is a per- it is a perseverance and there's some value to that right but it's perseverance without uh It's strictly speaking perseverance. See, normally in most, like, human endeavors, when you persevere, you gain some agency through that perseverance, and that's intrinsically reinforcing. And I feel like that's really essential that these don't have, and that's the component that I'm talking about that I think they're missing. Uh, Kendall.
2: Um, Since we are talking about, I mean, basically these mechanics are, we have these down to a psychological level. Um, Do you think any point in the future where humans and themselves will evolve past that, so that that no longer works. And the monkeys continue to do that, and we're kind of, you know, we're more and we're, you know, give or take. Um, as more and more of these games become more and more popular, and this is more the norm of how games are made, how games are created, will they the effect will then dissipate
7: because now everyone is everyone knows that it's a true psychology to get us to pay is now no longer effective.
0: I think there will be some of that for sure. I mean, people are... I mean, like, how many... I mean, just anecdotally, right? Like, have you heard anyone who had a bad experience with one of these and no longer plays it? So if you know that, then you know for a fact that at least one person has modified their behavior and reaction to this. Uh, so we know that's, that's going to definitely happen. I mean... How pervasive is it? I don't know. One thing I am really scared of, though, is that uh, if this type of structure becomes the de facto way to make a game, uh, that will be really dangerous because then truly all games will have just degenerated into, like, we're just not good enough at making games. We're just going to end up making slot machines because we couldn't figure out how to do it right. Yeah. So kind of playing on that question, you have a lot of experience now with all these free-to-play mechanics. You don't really realize you're at the paywall until you've reached it, right? Or you've actually been beyond it, like by 10, 20 hours. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel that you can now see it coming better? Like when you first start up a game, you're like,
3: oh, like
0: wow. that. Like, have you? you Is insight than normal? Well, I feel like I do, but you know, like Puzzle and Dragons threw me for a loop because they do it differently, right? Because they do that thing.
3: I feel like going from that like
7: super complex of that. Mechanic.
0: You you yeah, I think personally, I would actually be a lot more, um, a lot less patient. I mean, the thing is, is that like I made myself play through these, uh, even when I, you get, even when I got to the paywall, just to see what it would feel like, right? So uh, I think I'm done doing that research. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, someone new who hasn't spoken yet. How about you? You've already... Okay, go ahead anyway.
6: <laughs> um, first of all, any kind that it's not a game doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because there were games where you used to spend $30, $60, you know that's what you were going to spend, and then you get, you know, 10 hours, 30 hours of gameplay. play. Um,
0: yeah, I really would like to avoid having this be a discussion of the definition of the word game.
6: I and mean, for a lot of people I know that play the free-to-play games, they'll set a limit for themselves. Like, for me, I won't pay more than $5 mm-hmm. for the mobile game. Um, so for a knockoff version of that game that I played, Jewel Dragon, that's what I paid, and then I was done paying. And after, I don't know how many hundreds of hours, I'm kind of done with the game, because it still gets to where you can advance. But my question is... Is there really any difference between people who sit and play console games for many, many hours and are addicted to the way that feels, and the effect that has on their life, as opposed to any negative effects that might happen to some people who play, you know, a, a game they pick up and put down, pick up and put down? How do we make games we want to avoid that effect, It still interest people and fascinate people in the same way?
0: Okay, that's a fantastic question. So I would say that there is a big difference, and the difference depends on what kind of game you play. I've always thought that games are, in their essence, teaching devices. And I've always felt like the greatest power of what a game can be is to not just teach you things, right, but by way of teaching you, by way of you learning through practicing the game, that you increase your agency, and you do it in a way so that you feel like you increase your agency in real life too. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that even if you're a, if you play a game in addicted fashion, right, and you can't put it down and you play it all the time, if that game, if you're learning something continuously new from that game over time, if even after a hundred hours, like I play um, Gran Turismo all the time, right, I spend a lot of money putting an elaborate setup and I've, I mean, I play that, like, a couple times a week. So I used to play it, like, 10, 20 hours a week. Uh, and there's still depth there. There's still, even after, like, playing it incessantly for about two years, I'm still learning new things in the practice of that pursuit. And I feel like if there's a pursuit where you can continue to get better at, even after a long time, uh, that's incredibly valuable to just you as a human for improving uh, just yourself. And I think that once you can do that, even in a small way from a video game, then you can start to understand how to apply that to uh, other real-life pursuits that don't necessarily map to video games. And so I think that's really powerful. If you're learning something, then that can expand all kinds of you know, opportunities and your belief in yourself and your sense of self-efficacy and all these other things and do all these great things. Uh, if all you're doing is uh, you're watching numbers go up and you're just uh, not learning anything from that experience then yeah that's a harmful experience I would say and not productive yeah so that's it's I mean that's that's the interesting thing about puzzle and dragons you know because they have the deep game but then they have this monetization on top of it that's also deep for other reasons yeah I just think
5: uh, you know as as game developers, I'm the guy that puts on a suit and talks about money a lot. So I, I, I have a marketing firm, so I, I'm one of the evil guys that thinks people should get paid for their work. Um, so, you know, in, in marketing, you talk about price discrimination, and some people, you know, if you sell Call of Duty at sixty bucks, there's some people who would have been willing to pay two hundred dollars for that experience. Some people are only willing to pay ten dollars, and some would pay eighty. But we settle on the price sixty you know, the $60 price point um, because they don't really have a better
0: way of doing that right now. Right. And in the free-to-play model,
5: you let people choose what they're willing to invest in their own entertainment experience. So some people may set their value at $5. Some people may set their value at $0. You know, if you some of the games my kids play, like I always go through and see like what the most popular purchases are, mm-hmm. and frequently those ninety nine dollar bundles are like more popular than the thirty and twenty five dollar bundles. Right. So some people have that large of an appetite for it, and I don't think all people create games for the normal purpose of enriching humanity. Some people mm-hmm. just want to create an experience where people enjoy killing time.
0: Well, all um... this allows. Them. I mean, that's, that's a completely valid perspective too. What I would say in response to that is that, um, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the free to play model. I mean, obviously, as you stated, it creates a lot of freedom in the sense that, yeah, it allows you to actually, uh, sell more individually to individual people according to what, you know, their price point is, for lack of a better term, right? But what I hope to have driven home here is that there's, uh, psychological processes that are happening here and there 's a lot of interesting subtle things that are happening here and uh, you can do all of you can perform all these monetizations in many more different ways than what we 've explored here. Uh, some of them work because they mislead the player about the nature of what they are. Some of them work and don 't do that um, something i didn 't cover you know there are some free to play games like uh, League of Legends that are known to be uh, actually uh, very, very non-coercive in the way that they do their monetization. Um, and so uh, my my whole point is that, look, there's lots of different ways to do it. There's a lot of potential here. I feel like we haven't really fully understood all the different ways in which we can take advantage of this model. Uh, we're only doing it in these narrow number of ways because that's what's working now. And nobody's really uh, studying this. They're just looking at the output, and that's not a good way to study a system, in my opinion. Go ahead. I wanted to
2: ask what you could, I guess, forecast on the uh, console forefront. I mean,
0: (laughs) Uh, whatever they're saying is going to be different. (laughs) 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 This is the only thing that I'll care to forecast.
2: We're all kind of dreading today the that there is a free-to-play console game because they're analyzed to pay what you want to get out
0: of it. Well, they have those on PS3 already. Did you know that? And they have that on Xbox,
2: too. The,
0: and, and there you go. Killer
3: Instinct
2: was coming out, right? Yeah, yeah, the yeah there you go. <laughs> okay, that's a perfect example. Killer Instinct. You have the core gamers who go to conventions for, like, you know, fight, fighting game conventions where you can actually walk home with a couple hundred grand from beating the best guy over in Korea. Yeah. But then they have to pay X amount of money to get that kind of hours playing the game. And this dude's grinning over there here to ear, He's like, that's for my job. Seriously, though, who wouldn't pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to be the best dude, only to walk home and have the dividends paid, you ba- know, now they're balanced. Like, that's, that's where they're free to play, and that's where I'm wondering, like, Will this only extend past mobile and PC or Apple, for that matter? And, you know, do we, can we see this
0: ever? Okay, I'm actually going to venture a, a more dramatic prediction. Um, I think I think that there will be more f- different free-to-play structures that are evolving. And I think that as an industry, we're going to learn how to utilize them more effectively. And I think we're also going to understand better... Uh, Ways in which we can positively and negatively uh, influence people to engage in ways so that uh, we won't get as many of the side effects that we're getting that are undesirable right now. Right now, you know what? The ones who are making money, they don't care about the side effects because they don't need to. They're making plenty of money. But the thing that's important is how do we sustain this, and also, you know, what effect long term does it have on people? And we, we need to be cognizant of what these things are doing. Yeah, Jeremy. That uh, the people that
3: made puzzles and dragons. We're not sort of expecting their success? That's what they claimed. Okay.
0: <laughs> feel
3: that they had someone on their team? Of, you said it's five people, is that correct? There's,
0: uh, I read an article where they said there was about six original developers. Of course, the team now is like much bigger, and they work on it constantly.
3: Do you think that at the beginning, and maybe as a second part of the question, do you think that now have someone at their company that's just trying to maximize the monetization?
0: as opposed to care about the gameplay? Um, I think with a kind of product that they have, I venture that they don't consider the gameplay to be separate from how they monetize. In other words, I think that they just, as a whole, just tweak the whole thing, and there's probably a guy or a couple guys who just to do that. And maybe their job would map best to what a designer does on other like games that aren't monetized monetized in such a way. One more, final question. I will save it for someone who hasn't spoken yet. Yes.
7: Hi, in late. I apologize. Hello. In early on your presentation, Did you discuss gamification. Um, some of the terms: octolysis, DQ, and gamification.
0: I've heard of gamification. I I haven't heard of...
7: I mean, obviously, the title of your presentation is distracting, you know, free to play. To me, when I came in late, Uh talking very much about the 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 motives behind the play and the continuance of play, his theorem is that there's white hat, black hat, left brain, right brain, eight different areas that motivate people to, to build that dopamine.
0: Interesting. I'm not familiar with that structure, but I'm actually really interested in hearing more about it.
7: Yeah, my, my background, my interest, I'm brand new to this industry. 51, I have less than 100 hours of game play my entire life. But it's for corporate gamification, how to induce people to do things in a positive manner, especially fitness and health, through gamification. Interesting. And so that's why I was interested in your topic.
0: Gotcha. Well, I think we'll have this on video later so you can see the beginning of it. Uh, um, did you have anything else to ask or yeah, any
7: I was just curious again if your background gamification
0: firm and the Oh people. well my background is in design strictly speaking um, so uh, like interface design um, user uh, what do they like to call it um, human factors yeah that's so word um, but I've just been strictly like a game designer for the last so is this
7: I knew the area of using a, a certain platform you know, I'm
0: Yeah, Yeah, some of us use Unity. We're we're all over the place. Um, Yeah, I'll introduce you to some people afterward. Cool. Okay, so that was the last one. So no more. Thanks so much, guys.